Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Hi, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I have an anthology coming out called Moms Don't Have Time 2, a quarantine anthology. And it comes out on February 16th and has essays by 60 plus of the authors who have been on this podcast. So first of all, please pre-order this book. I think you will love it. I'm so excited about all the authors who are represented. Um, just to give you a few, um, Chris Bajalian, uh, Jewel Parker Rhodes, Ashley Prentice Norton, Gretchen Rubin, Rima Zaman, Eileen Zimmerman. And that is just from the first page of the multi-page table of contents. So please pick up this book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. It's available anywhere you buy books, Amazon, bookshop.org, and your local independent bookstore. So please pick up a copy. And also, I want to invite you listeners to my um, fundraiser slash launch party the night it comes out on February 16th, a Tuesday at 7 p.m., Bookhampton and the Children's Museum of the East End are co-hosting it for me. And 50 of the authors who wrote essays in this book, as well as many of the amazing authors who blurbed this book, um, who wrote little praiseworthy quotes at the, at the front, will be there. And you can be there too. So if you go to my website, zibbyowens.com, and just click on Anthology and go to Book Tour, you will see um, a whole fundraiser section. And for $50, um, you can attend. You'll get a copy of the book, and you'll get to schmooze on Zoom with all of these amazing authors. This is like going to be the literary happening of February. So please come. I would love to see you all in person on Zoom, I guess, but even see some of your faces. I know so many of you are really loyal listeners, and that makes me really happy. All proceeds of the book and the fundraiser are going to the Susan Felice Owens Program for COVID-19 Vaccine Research at Mount Sinai Health System. And it is named after my husband's mother, who passed away from COVID over the summer, which many of you followed along on Instagram as I uh, recounted that horrific experience. So all the proceeds are going there. The cost includes the price of a book. So thank you for supporting this effort and for supporting my book. I can't wait to see you there. I had the best time getting to know Jennifer Rosner when I interviewed her as part of the Detroit Jewish Book Fair program. For those of you who don't know, Jennifer is the author of If a Tree Falls, A Family's Quest to Hear and Be Heard, which was a memoir about raising her deaf daughters in a hearing and speaking world. She also wrote a children's book called The Mitten String, which was a Sydney Taylor Book Award notable. And her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Massachusetts Review, the Forward and Good Housekeeping. Jennifer received her BA from Columbia University and her PhD from Stanford. Her debut novel, which is what we talked about extensively in this particular interview, The Yellow Bird Sings, is being translated and published around the world. The book tells the story of a Jewish mother and her child in hiding during World War II. The novel is grounded in interviews, travel, and a great deal of historical research. 
In addition to writing, Jennifer teaches philosophy. Currently, she teaches the Clement course in the humanities, a college-level course for women living in economic distress. I hope you enjoy our conversation, even if you couldn't be with us virtually in Detroit. Great. Hi, Jennifer. I'm excited to do this with you. Me too. (laughs) I just want to say how happy I am to be here and also to have Zibi as the interviewer of this conversation because you are such a great supporter of of authors and readers and and humans generally. And I just really appreciate everything you do in the book world and and well beyond that. That's so nice. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you about this book which was so great and really just has such staying power. I think one of the best debuts of the year, particularly with Jewish themes and all of that. So can I ask you some questions about it? Okay. (laughs) So we heard a little synopsis already, but basically what inspired you to write this book and what what did you hope to achieve by writing it? Okay. So the journey to getting to this novel is a kind of interesting one. I am a philosopher. I was a professor and had two daughters and they were both born deaf. And this kind of turned my world upside down. I had been doing this kind of dry academic writing and I didn't really love it very much. And then when the deafness in our family emerged, I just needed to start I don't know, expressing personal, our our decisions, our feeling, my feelings, you know, what we were going through, a lot of fears. And I found that kind of writing to be so nourishing. I had never done anything like that. I wasn't one of those people who had wanted to be a writer since she was a little girl. But I, this personal process and kind of self-expression was so meaningful and nourishing. And these little snippets of this eventually became a memoir, which, and I was giving a book talk actually through the Jewish Book Council. I was describing our journey with our daughters and how we were encouraging their every vocalization. We gave, we made a decision to give them hearing technology and to take a listening and spoken language pathway. And I was saying how much we were, you know, encouraging our children to talk. And a woman in this in the audience described to me her childhood experience of having to be completely silent. She was in hiding in a shoemaker's attic with her mother during World War II. And I couldn't stop thinking about that woman. And like as a child having to be silenced, as a mother having to keep her child silenced, what that must have been like. I ended up finding her and interviewing her and then interviewing many other hidden children. So that was kind of the seed of the story. It got planted by this person's comments, you know, uh, one day at a book event that had nothing to do with hidden children or, or, or the Holocaust or anything. But it resonated so much with me because we were so much in the world of silence and sound and then learning of this woman who needed to be silenced it just kind of hooked on to me and I I couldn't let it go. Wow. You know, I think often about having to keep kids silenced during the Holocaust and characters like, like Shira and Anne Frank and others, when I think about how hard it's been even just to deal with my kids during the pandemic. And we have like every electronic at our fingertips, but even with all of that, how hard it is just to keep them basically inside and not socializing. And then I think, gosh, with the fear lurking, you know, similar fear today, but obviously on a much different scale. How did how did parents how did they do that? I don't know. I mean, and, and we know about it. Like, you know, you even had Christina, the farmer's wife, come in and just say, like, "Well, I just can't imagine how I would keep my son like this quiet either." Like, come, let me take her for a walk around the chickens or whatever. What did you find from all your research? Like, how how did people do it, or did they just do it because that was it, life or death? And so they did it. Yeah. 
I mean, for one thing, I think children grew up very, very quickly and they were responsible and careful and, and you know, conscientious very, very early on when, when necessity required it. But, you know, one of the things that was really interesting about my interviews is, you know, there were all these different scenarios of people who had been in hiding. So, you know, there were the, those who were in these cramped spaces and, and having to be silent. There was a person who was hiding in plain sight on a neighbor's farm. There was someone who had, was carried over a ghetto wall in a suitcase. I mean, all these all these situations. There was a man who was in a school attic with his mom and aunt and uncle. And there were children at school and playing in the yard. And he was inside this attic looking out through these slats and having to be quiet. But what was unbelievable about his story was his mother found an atlas and she spent time with him. She would quiz him and say, you know, if you had to get from Odessa to Warsaw, what path would you take? You know, what route? And she taught him how to read while in this attic. And this man describes his time in hiding during the Holocaust as being cocooned in love, which is such a testament to that mom. I mean, I, it just, it is so incredible what people did and their ingenuity and their creativity. And that was part of, I think, what inspired me to have my, the mother character, Rosha, be telling stories and they're working on, on reading and music and other things because this is how they got through that time. And my editor initially said, I can't even keep my kids still on, you know, like dealing with a one snow day. How can they function in this barn for, you know, what's essentially almost a year and a half or something? And and that's kind of what we, you know, she, you know, she was encouraging me to set out to do is to say, like, how can you hide? And what happens? Like, how do you use the bathroom? How do you brush your teeth? How do you, how do you function like this over this amount of time and get through? And it, in listening to the stories of the, the hidden children, uh, there was just so much resilience and intelligence that came into play. And it's very, very inspiring and humbling. Wow. It also almost reminds me of that book Room, although they didn't have to be as quiet most of the time, but just what parents can do when it's just you and a child and limited materials and you just have to make do with your imaginations. It's yeah, it's quite remarkable. And I also felt like, how were you able, like I felt fully like I was in the situation after I read this book that like I knew what it was like because you described it so well. How did you, did you get all that from the people you interviewed? I mean, it felt like, like, did you ever try to like, bury yourself in hay? Because it felt very much like you had experienced it yourself. Yeah. Well, there's two things. I mean, I didn't bury myself under hay, although we do have rabbits and we have a lot of hay around. <laughs> and I could have done that, but I, and I do know what hay really feels like and smells like and how it pokes at you. I think that my, you know, every writer brings strengths, weaknesses to their work and has to, has to kind of compensate for things that are harder for them and, and has an easier time with certain things. And I think that honestly, being a mom of deaf children enabled me to really slow down when it comes to sensory experience, which enables my ability as a writer to be descriptive of sensory occurrences. And so I think that is something. I think I spent a real lot of time, you know, what would it sound like? What would it smell like? How did it feel? You know, really slow. And that's what I think enabled the sense of really being there because of the way I was able to harness, we had done so much work with our children about, you know, about not just hearing, but seeing and getting every sensory perception in order to gain as much information about the world as possible. And I think that training actually has really helped me as a writer. But I also did a lot of travel for this novel. So I had written a draft of it first. So I interviewed the hidden children, many, many and then I set all their stories aside because I wasn't going to write any of their particular stories. I thought maybe they would write them or maybe their 
children or grandchildren will write those stories. I set them aside and I wrote a story kind of out of my imagination. And then I felt I really should do some kind of cross check here because I'm here in Western Massachusetts imagining the convent and the barn and all these other things. Just want to make sure I'm okay, you know? (laughs) And I found a guide who was just this amazing man. He read my manuscript in advance and then he planned our trip and he took took me, actually my eldest daughter came with me and we went to several places. We went to this area of farmland where you got to see how it would really be to try to hide someone in your barn. Because, you know, initially you think of a farm and you think they have a lot of land and it might be fine, you know, pretty safe. But, you know, for community reasons, the houses were very close together and the barns were right there too. And then the the land you had was in these narrow swaths going back. So you didn't actually have a lot of space from your neighbor. Your neighbors were kind of right on there. It was very hard to keep anything private. And in fact, even when we were there looking around, people were wondering who we were and asking questions. So you could see that, you know, people were very curious and hiding someone in your barn would be really hard. And he took us to several convents, but one where Jewish children had been hidden. And this was really interesting too, because, you know, I had sort of concocted a bit of a grand convent (laughs) initially, stone and, you know, and then he said, you know, we're a pretty poor country. It's brick here. And, but there were all these sensory details there, you know, the smell of soup as you walk in and the way your feet move on the floor and what the partitions were like where people were hidden and all this kind of sensory information that was so incredible to have as a novelist. And then he also took us, much to my daughter's chagrin, to this area of primeval forest where my character, you know, since my character was going to be hiding in the forest in winter, I insisted that we go in winter. And so we're tromping around. It's freezing cold. <laughs> my daughter is saying, why, why didn't you set your book in Greece? I mean, why are, what, what are you doing? You know, but we were, we were, couldn't I do, I know. So, but, but, you know, to see the denseness of the forest, to see how someone could possibly dig a burrow in that, in that situation. And all, again, all the ingenuity that came to those people survived in the woods and in family camps and all these things that happened. So there was travel. I also got to go to Tel Aviv and I met a violin maker who's sort of this amazing man who reclaims violins that were salvaged from Holocaust times and he rebuilds them and they're played around the world in orchestras and just so many things that really enriched, enriched my novel. But in addition, you know, I consulted with so many people. So there was, you know, a forest tracker because I had to figure out how my character could move through the woods and a mushroom forager and, you know, a, a nun and all these different people. But most importantly, a masterclass violinist because of Shira being a violin prodigy. I needed to understand how that was going to work out, how what she would play, when would a piece be played, etc. So there was a lot that went into this journey of of understanding what it must be like to be a hidden in this barn and then move to a convent or into the woods, et cetera, et cetera. So each step took a lot of research. And tell me about the decision to have the male owner of the barn, Heinrich, sort of come and visit her each night and right next to her daughter and how that decision got made in the novel and then how how was that okay? Because there was some noise involved with that. Like, how do you think they got away with that? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, let me say that while I set most every personal story aside, when I made decisions like this, I I wanted to make sure that they have happened. And this is a scenario that I heard about in a 
less than entirely clear way, there was a, a woman, you know, nearly 80 or whatever, who was talking to me about her experience being hidden. She was quite young in the barn with her mother, who, and there was a farmer who she believed visited every night. She didn't totally know what was happening. Although actually I'm going to try to find it because I think it's really incredible and moving. She wrote a poem as an adult and you know, poetry, (laughs) how it's, you know, something in your experience will just show up for you. I have it. I have it on my phone. And this is this woman um, who said to me, you know, that, that he came and they talked about the news and she thinks maybe he loved her mother is called wild strawberries. And this is her poem. It's very short. Sometimes under cover of darkness, Mr. R would visit. I would see my mother's silhouette, her long hair down her back, and in the dark, the outline of Mr. R's powerful shoulders as he sat opposite her on the straw-covered attic floor. He would talk in hushed tones. I sat beside my mother, but apart from them, feeling a vague excitement mingled with fear. He would bring sweet, wild strawberries in the night. Wow. And, you know, I was also very much aware of how much sex was traded in the Holocaust, traded for survival. And so the scenario felt realistic and it felt like, you know, this this family is I wanted this to be a blurry situation because, you know, this family is the, the couple, the, the, the farmer and his wife. They're risking their lives. They're risking their families. I think the wife is in many ways righteous but yet, you know, she gives eggs and bread to the child, not to the mom. She knows something's happening in the barn. But, you know, there's a question of whether it's kind of a relief that it's happening <laughs> and that there's some pressure off her. I mean, there, I wanted it to be a really blurry scenario. I wanted it to be want, you wonder whether he fell in love with her, Rosha, in the barn or whether it really was just sort of payment of a sort, etc. So I thought it would create, obviously, tension, but also questions about how we respond in times with the challenges that we're faced with, you know, because we we make a lot of moral judgments of people and how they respond in circumstances, but we're not necessarily faced with those same challenges, right? We want to believe we'd be one thing. Sometimes we might be a modeled thing. And I think often people were modeled in their reaction, you know, kind of both good and bad. I learned that one criteria for being accepted into Righteous Among the Nations and Yad Vashem is that there was no sexual predation of any sort, but also learned that there were many people who were were candidates and then rejected for this reason that there had been. So just a lot of blurry stuff. And the noise is a really good question, actually, about noise in the barn. And maybe the only thing to say is that she was trying to keep it still as possible and trying to hope that it wasn't going to kill them them all. And, you know, it's very complicated. Yes, very complicated. And I feel like you left it a little ambiguous because there was one stretch where he didn't visit as often and she was missing that. She was welcoming him back when eventually he did. And there was a sort of a question mark, like, do you fall? It's almost like what is that called? The Stockholm syndrome, or you, you fall in love with your abusers after a while. And anyway, yeah. interesting. Um, to yeah. I and mean, that was also part of the blurriness I wanted there because, you know, her body responds, even if the situation is quite horrible and some there, you know, I had gotten some reactions of people upset about this. And I was like, but this is what happens because we are bodies also. <laughs> and it happens even when the situation is very hostile your body can respond and then people feel guilty for having responded, but it's something that happens. And anyway, I just, 
I think I wanted the complexity to be there. And tell me about the decision to have music be such a part of it. I feel like this all sort of gels with the sound and your daughters and uh, your music. Well, anyway, you you take it away from there. (laughs) Well, there are so many parts to this. I mean, the first thing is that my father, who I lost a year ago, he played violin every single day. So he was a very dedicated violinist. He wasn't a prodigy or, or a virtuoso, but he played daily. And it was really infused in my life because I heard it every day of, of my life. And music, I saw that he used music. He also composed some music. And it was it seemed to me that it was a way of him somehow connecting to his Jewish roots through the music he was writing as well. And then I studied opera and I, he and I made music together. And so I saw the connective power of music. I also have to say that it links to something else, a few things that are dealing with the deafness in my family, which is that, you know, when we looked back at our family tree and we, I eventually discovered these great, great aunts who lived in a little shtetl in the 1800s who were deaf. And the one like substantial story I learned about them is that when they went to sleep, they would tie a string from their wrist to their babies at night. And so that in the darkness, if the baby cried or fussed, they would feel the tug and they'd wake to care for them. And this string in the darkness was such a model of connection and mothering. And I think I had felt in many ways unheard by my mom, except when I sang. So music was one of those times when she really attended. But I wanted a string so badly between my daughters and me. And I didn't feel that that was really in my, in my, not, I wasn't sure if it was in my repertoire. I think that having, I think I chose violin, not just for my father, but because it was a string instrument. And I wanted Shira to have this connective string that moved through and her mother plays cello and her father played violin and her father, grandfather was a violin maker. So there was this string, the string instruments and string moving through the story for very personal reasons all through. And tell me a little more, if you are willing about why you didn't feel like you felt heard by your mother. Yeah, I mean, I think that is really complicated. My mom has a hearing loss that isn't necess- isn't supposedly linked to the genetic deafness that's carried by my husband and I having recessive genes. So we're not totally sure about how it all links, but she too grew up with some hearing loss, which I think caused her to retreat in certain ways. I think it's an energy saver. I think it's it's conservation for deaf people sometimes, but I think it's also that a variety of things that happened in her own childhood caused her to be more kind of turned in and not turned out. And like, I think she like, you know, loves me dearly, but just wasn't able to be as attentive and focused. And I think I was, it was intermittent, which is very hard for children. <laughs> sort of, you you think you sometimes have it and then it's gone and it's very hard to hold on to. So it was something that was, was quite hard. And yet, like I said, it was funny. Like when I sang, it was like everything stopped and, and she was right there. And so I, I, I'd sang a real lot. <laughs> and, you know, I studied, I studied voice and I, you know, it was the thing I, I really took on because I, that connection meant so much to me. And so I think that when it came to creating these characters, I just, I think the power of new transportive power of music and connective power of music, just, it was like right there as a, as a subject matter. And then with the book being divided into three parts and having three basic identities for Shira as she goes through different stages of her hiding and her travels and, you know, culminating in this fantastic ending, I thought. Tell me about the division of her time in those ways and how you even renamed the characters and then started the character rather. And in each section, it became, you you referred to her as the new name, not even her original name, which I thought was really interesting. Tell me about that. 
Thanks. Well, so I thought it was really important for us to remember now that we're in this age where we can find anyone, you know, if you want to see your fourth grade friend, you just go on Facebook and put their name in you know, and there, there, there she'll be, you know, but people lost the thread of not just their families, but their sel- themselves. And I was really struck by this. I was struck by it emotionally. I went to the Holocaust Museum in DC and saw this almost like a program where there were these pamphlets of people and they would have a face and it would say, do you remember me? And it was this literal question. Like, if you could tell me that I'm, you know, Anna, you know, whatever from this village, then I would be able to go back and find my family and and figure out, you know, you know, where I come from and who I am. And it was just incredible. And it kind of resonated with me also as a philosopher, because, you know, what we are as we persist in time, you know, and and when we shed particular things, are we still that same person? And, and, you know, what does it mean to be a self over time? And especially in a situation where all these things have to change, your name changes for your safety. Not everyone got to have their name buried in a jar that got unearthed later. A lot of the time they just changed their name and they forgot the other one and they were five years old and they don't know their mother and father's actual name. They just knew them as mama and tata, etc. So all of that way in which the threads can get frayed or broken completely, I felt was really interesting and important because, you know, later there was really no way back. You couldn't figure it out. And so people were just lost. It was incredible. And so that was that was just an important point for me to see that this is what happens in war. It happens, especially in a brutal way to children, because the thread gets lost and then they can't quite connect and, and find their way back. So that that's kind of part of what I did with that, with the different names. I also wanted it to be linked to the fact of so much religious confusion because, you know, your name gets changed to a, you know, a Catholic name and you're put in a convent and now you're praying to this, you know, to this God and you're listening to these Psalms. And I wanted even the music, there was this sort of the chaotic Jewish music beforehand and then the orderly music of the convent. And it was soothing to her. And there were many hidden children, you know, I'd read about who, you know, ended up in other settings where they clung on to the orderliness or, or you know, the Mary statue or something that felt like a, some kind of anchor or mother figure or something just to kind of orient and reorient. But then later, it's so confusing to, to figure out who you are and who you were and, uh, you know, how to be now. So I wanted all that to be up in the air because I saw that very clearly, especially in some of the people I interviewed. They either never quite found the thread or they imposed a new thing. I'm going to be a Jew. I'm going to Israel. I'm going to whatever. And, and that's what they did. But it was like a, it was like a imposition in a way, like they decided it by fiat rather than sort of an organic development. And I hadn't really, I mean, obviously I had thought about it, but your book just put this in such stark, you know, black and white details of how hard it is to find somebody and how many people have just drifted. And even the like near miss type situations that must have happened all the time. It just is like heartbreaking. I think that's one of the things about this book is like every part of it, you know, logically reading it has actually happened in real life magnified millions of times. And can you, and like the depth of that sort of suffering and those emotions just makes this book even more powerful. So riding on the coattails of that trauma, collective trauma. One of the questions actually from the chat, and you t- you started talking a little bit about your philosophy background, is what type of philosophy do you teach and how, how has that affected your writing? And it sounds like it has. Yeah. So 
my work has been in the area of moral psychology and in the nature of self, you know, so from in the academic realm, it's, it's really quite abstract and theoretical. And that bothered me a lot because, you know, it's about the self. So you think <laughs> that we should be able to relate to that. But, you know, the, the work I did sort of, you know, as, as, you know, before kind of really moving more into writing had to do with the ways in which there can be ambivalence in the self and how, you know, I wrote, I, I edited this anthology called The Messy Self because it was about how we can have these warring factions within and warring desires. So we might want something, but we might not want to want it. And all this kind of conflict and ambivalence and fracture. And I, I think it has really affected my work in, in as a writer because, you know, especially, for instance, when Rosha makes this decision to give her child up for her safety so she'll live. And yet she carries this shame or guilt. It's it's inevitable to take it off your shoulders. You go to a family camp and someone else brought their child along. So maybe I could have made it. I could have made it to that camp with my child and I didn't have to give her up. But then you see at the at the family camp that maybe some children die because there's danger there too. So there wasn't, an, there was no exact answer here. Everyone was just doing anything and everything they could, the best decision they could make. Then the daughter will be in the barn and gets upset and makes a loud chirp and then real carries this for her forever thinking, you know, if I hadn't made that chirp, maybe I'd still be with my mother. My mother sent me away because I was too loud. If I could have been quieter, you know. So the kinds of ways in which our minds do this thing where we can carry, even when I say I was given up so that I would be, so that I could live, my mother gave me away so I could live, sits in the same mind with, if I hadn't made that chirp, maybe I could have still been there, you know. And and we do this all the time because we can draw walls in our minds and, you know, what it is to be a conflicted self, what it is to have self-deception, et cetera, all these kind of things, you know, are kind of an undergirded in emotional experiences that I was trying to, you know, include in the novel. It's also, what does it even mean to be safe? And what does it mean to live, right? There was one part where, She's saying, you know, well, safe is with my mom. What do you mean? Keep me safe. Like I was safe. I was with her. And I feel like that's what kids long for, right? That's what they know. And to have all that taken away and say, no, no, you know, now you're going to go with a bunch of strangers to a convent and take away all of my love, but you'll be alive. And what five-year-old would take that choice? I I mean, yes. I mean, I know. I think it's just so complicated because you... Yeah, everyone will do their best and ma- and tries to make their the life that they're given to make as much sense as possible. But there are these emotional pulls that are so deep and profound. And, you know, it was also why, as I was writing this, and there were children being separated from their parents at the border, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, they're gonna, we're going to lose the thread as we have, as, as there's 540 who can't be put back together uh, with their parents now. And now I'm going to, you know, if if in 75 years, someone interviews them for their novel and they sit down and say, I'm still in this acute pain because I was separated back then when I was five. I mean, that's what I learned is having these interviews with people who, you know, have made these beautiful lives for themselves. But the pain of that time is just it's, it's endless, you know, it just doesn't, st- it doesn't go away, you know, um, it's right there under the surface. And, and that kind of emotional complexity is what I really wanted to capture and the, how difficult it was. Well, you did, <laughs> you captured it all. It's, you know, all these themes that you bring up are so thought provoking and, you know, speak to a whole generation. What does it mean to have a generation of people in pain growing up and then the effects on them raising kids? I remember in college, I did some report for chill about children of Holocaust survivors and 
what it meant to grow up as as them with parents who had a such trauma in their own lives. And then I think about even now, which is again, not the same, but just a period of time where people feel at risk. And what does that do? What does that do to, you know, I, I, whether or not to send your kid to homeschool or, you know, leave the city or all these decisions parents have to make now, it's still like, what do you do? You have to make your own. It's like, it, it's like you have to make your own way again, right? There are not clear guidelines and do you trust officials? And I don't know, there's yeah. some of them. Yeah. In a, in, a, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very complicated. And I remember interviewing one man who, you know, we I went into his home and it was this, you know, you see that he just has really built this beautiful life. He showed me pictures of his grandchildren's bar mitzvahs and it was all this, you know, kind of healed world. And then we sat down and the interviews took, you know, quite a long time. I'd be there for five hours or something. And, you know, by the end, you know, we're, I mean, first of all, we're both in tears, but he even, you know, at one point sort of we were talking and he he had been kind of shifted around in these different ways that were very trying as a young child. And I think, you know, he it's like while we were talking, it's almost like his eyes like shuddered over and he just said to me, if you told me my mother was in the other room, I wouldn't go in there. And it's just there was so much pain, you know, that that's all. And longing that went for so long you know, unmet in this case, you know, longing and then kind of rebuilding something over it. But it's just, there's a hole there. What do you think about inherited trauma? I know I was kind of throwing that around and someone in the chat is asking about it as well. What do you think about it? I mean, I think that I'm no expert on any on that, but I just feel like it's cellular probably, you know, that that's what I think. I think it's cellular, but also, you know, I think about this as a mom, of two children. So both were born deaf, but you know, my first one was so, it was such a surprise. I mean, it sounds like it shouldn't be because my mom had hearing loss, but my mother had hearing loss, you know, supposedly due to mastoid infections. And then we learned this, there was like this hidden tree that had asked family tree that had asterisks of deaf people, but I had no idea about it. So I I call from the hospital and say, my daughter failed the test. And my dad's like, oh, I'm sure it's, you know, fluid, you know, that kind of thing. But I think that what happens is your whole body goes into a mode of, okay, you know, how are we going to deal with this, et cetera. And, And I know that my older daughter absorbed so much of you know, our reactivity to her. Whereas my second daughter by then, you know, I just flung her over my shoulder and kept singing because, you know, I knew by then that whether she could hear it or not, she was going to get it. You know, she was going to, she saw my face, she felt my body, she felt the air, she knew what I was doing. You know, she kind of knew as much without her sound as, as with it, you know, but I didn't know that the first time. So, but I do think that you can just see, I mean, maybe it's, what do they say about the oldest child and the first pancake and all that stuff? But <laughs> I think that, you know, they do feel, feel your reactivity and they're so sensitive and so smart. So there's both like the cellular, but there's also the kind of transference inevitably. And we're all doing our best and trying not to and putting on a, you know, our, our, you know, calm, brave, whatever. But of course they're much smarter than (laughs) they know everything. So, you know, I can't hide anything in my family. You know, my kids know know it all. So I think that it's, it's quite real is what I'll say. Inherited either, you know, (laughs) one way or another, you know. Yes. The, the ability of kids to pick up on emotions. Yeah. 
crazy. Tell me a little more about writing this book. You said you didn't grow up wanting to be a writer, and yet here you are with a memoir and a children's book and a novel and all of it. (laughs) I know. Well, I found it all out when I was 40 that I loved writing. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's a thing, the vicissitudes of life. So, you know, because of, really because of Sophia's deafness and then just trying to journal that experience and then learning that I love this. I love this so much. I love it a lot more than like logically constrained analytic philosophy writing. And so, you know, the memoir, I think I really needed to express all those things. And what I love about writing so much is that you think you're writing about one thing and then it all gets turned on its head when you realize, when when the work is coming out, you realize. So for instance, I thought we were working on whether our children would hear. But ultimately, when I examined all that stuff with my mom and all the string and, and et cetera, it was whether I would hear them. I don't, I, I think that's what this was all about. It was all a big question of whether I could hear, not whether they could, you know. But I didn't know that at first. I, you know, someone would say, what are you working on? I'm like, well, you, you know, it's about raising our daughters in a hearing speaking world and whether they would, you know, it's so it's just interesting. There's so much self-discovery. And I think what I love about it is that I'm connected to sort of subconscious things in a way that I never could be, I think, if I just went a- along, you know, without sitting down and being quiet and trying to write. So I really value it very much and feel so lucky to be doing it. And yeah, I mean, you know, I wanted, I stopped doing the sort of big high powered academic track to be on the floor with my kids anyway. And thank God for that. And then got to be writing in between. And that my process is I write in between, you know, I, (laughs) you know, right now everyone's home. So in between all of that, I I try to write. And that's been sort of true the whole time as they were growing up. I mean, now they're actually 17 and 20. So it's not as as nearly like it was, although they do still want me to make every meal, it seems like, Um, but they can make their own. (laughs) So that's good. But yeah, it's just been like that. I've been sort of writing in between things and being the on-call audiologist and the on-call, et cetera, you know, all the time, but have managed to, you know, to do these, this writing, which to me is such a gift of self-expression. But writing a novel is not the same. I mean, there's one thing where you write with your emotions and to sort out your feelings and even just to chronicle your experience for whoever's benefit and to share with others. And there's all these arguments for why that your memoir came into the world. But this is like, and I see all of the parallels, of course, but just teaching yourself how to write fiction, that's pretty impressive. Like, how did you, did you take any courses? Did you Google how to write a novel? Like, what did you do? I can't, people have several failed novels, you know, tucked away in drawers before they come out with something. Was this just your first out of the gate, you know, smash hit? Out of- I, it's, it's my first novel, but that, you know, when I met that lady at the book talk for my memoir, that was in 2010. So this thing's been batting around a really long time. So while it is my first memoir, maybe someone else would have written you know, I mean, my first novel, someone might have written three or four of them in in this time. I don't know. But for me, since I am self-taught, I kind of shot my wad with that PhD in philosophy. I, I can't really go back and get the MFA, which I would really love to do. But I just, I don't know. I don't see how I can do that. But um, I did go to, I went to Breadlow for a session and I went to Tin House for a session. There's sort of these writing workshops in the world, had some really wonderful teachers and I just read a lot and that helps. And yeah, I mean, reading helps you become a good writer. What do you like to read? What are your favorite genres or authors? Yeah. I mean, I have to say that 
at different times, given what else, whatever I've been trying to write, there are certain re- you know reads that have made a huge difference for me. So during the course of writing The Yellowbird Sings, Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See was this book I just wanted, like I could have like wrapped it around myself with a cloth and carried it around because there's just something about the sentences you know, this, the sentence by sentence beauty of his writing, the structure of that novel is like that box where the jewel is. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing. I mean, to, to examine real, and I read it, I've read it many times because I was reading it as a writer, not only as a reader. And that was very, very meaningful to me. There are a lot of books like Toni Morrison's work, Marilyn Robinson's work, these are writers you read and just are studying, you know, how they put that together. How do you make, you know, you know, how do you, how do you incorporate that magical element in that way, you know, in that special way, or how do you have the ordinary rise to the extraordinary? Marilyn Robinson takes the most ordinary thing and you read, you're reading and you think like, you know, (laughs) so there, there, there are, there are writers like that who have been really influential. And, you know, I remember while I was working on my memoir, I kept going back to The History of Love by Nicole Krauss. And I kept going back to her ex-husband's book, Jonathan Safran Foer's work, et cetera. So because there was sort of an experimental quality to it that I was interested in. And there was like a looseness that, you know, I was going from philosophy writing to literature and wanting to kind of stretch. And so there were just you kind of go to different books at different times for different things, I guess. That's how it is for me. So funny, when I started my podcast, I had never, I mean, I took a lot of English in school and all of that, but school was kind of a long time ago at this point. And I, when I, as a grown up, when I've been reading, I wasn't reading, like, as you said, as a writer, right? I was just reading and enjoying and whatever. And author after author would say, well, no, when I take a p- apart the book and I take apart the structure and I analyze this and I analyze the, the, and I was like, you do really, do you think that the authors intended it that way? And it turns out, yes, they did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It seems so obvious now, but it's really part of the process to you have to sort of have that whole, you know, perspective on the on the project and and the in-depth research as I guess yeah. you can Well, it's interesting too cuz like in the course of writing this novel, I mean, I would read the draft just for verbs. Wow. You know, well, let me just think about the verbs. Are these the best verbs? Are they active? You know, do, do they have the power I want them to have or the passivity I want or, you know, that kind of thing and just the verbs. And then I would read just for setting. Do you feel you're in the barn? Do you feel you're in the woods? Do you feel, you know, can you really feel that, you know, with that sound, you know, et cetera? Like, how do I make this vivid? How do I make it feel this way? So, yeah, I mean, there's those 10 years, you know. <laughs> so. yeah, that's great. That's amazing. Well, good for you. I mean, however long it, it took. Did you ever want to send it out? Like, did you ever feel like, okay, this is good enough? Or did you know you wanted to keep going? And then how did you end up selling it? Yeah. Well, no, I never felt it was good enough. I mean, the, <laughs> you know, I think that's that's the philosophy training too, where it's it's so critical. I'm trained really critically, sadly. And and in fact, the beauty of of some writing environments I've been in is that they would have this thought where if you hear someone's new writing, you just say what's working. And I was like, that's amazing. You're, we're talking about what's working. I've never even done that before. I always used to talk about what isn't working. So anyway, it's such, it's a beautiful thing. And it actually helps you improve greatly because somehow when you hear what's working, that stuff rises and the other stuff falls. So it's, 
it's a really great thing. And it's a much more healthy world for me. I'm so happy to be in it. But let's see. I mean, I worked on it a long time. I ended up sending it. It was kind of a circuitous route, as many, many publishing routes are. I had had an agent for my memoir. She wasn't sure about this novel. We decided to part ways. So I was unagented. But there was an editor who had passed on my memoir but had written the nicest note. It was like the loveliest fail, you know? (laughs) She thought the writing was beautiful. She loved the story, but she just felt she couldn't make it big enough for her. And that was Amy Einhorn, who publishes really big books. And so she loved it, but she couldn't take it. So I said, what about just Amy Einhorn? Like, what if we just sent it to her? And my agent, who my my soon-to-be ex-agent was like, I can't, I don't think it's ready, whatever. And I was like, okay. So I sent it myself to Amy And I said, look, Amy, you passed on my memoir, but I know, I remember it was such a nice rejection. Would you consider reading it? And she said, I will read it. And she accepted it. So unagented and then said, so now you need to get an agent. (laughs) And and I said, well, if you've accepted my novel, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can get one, you know? And so I did. And that's how it happened, kind of in a backward way. But, you know, obviously if my agent had the, my ex agent, had she sent it to Amy, she would have taken it, but she didn't. So I sent it myself. And Amy and I, we worked on it. It wasn't done yet. In fact, the book I think I had written every single moment of the entire book. So what jumps in time now? I had written a lot of that story, the whole New York story. There was a second daughter. She couldn't bond to her. You know, there was, there was like all kinds of stuff on the cutting floor. Amy said, you know, I think the heart of the story is in the barn. I really care about this daughter, not that daughter. You know, we, you know, that kind of thing. And so it took shape that way where we really expanded the barn and, and this journey during the war only, and then kind of made a move to the later years. And I do want to say, I mean, it's always hard in these conversations because you never know if anyone, if there are people who haven't read and you don't want to do any spoiling, but, and I won't, but I just want to say that, you know, in making a decision about the ending, a lot of it had to do with respecting what I've learned from interviews of reunifications and how complicated they are. And our, and my daughter, my daughter character is five when you're really invested in her life. And that's a very simple time compared to being nearly 30, and what that really would be like to be true to it, to be fair to it, to give honor to the people who struggle with the complexities of finding someone after so many years and having such complicated emotions about it. Wanting to make sure to give that honor and not just make like wrap a big bow around something that's complicated. And so that kind of leads me to say that in the thing I'm working on now, there's some revisiting of this concept. I was about to ask that. So thank you. (laughs) What are you working on now? Yeah. So I decided that I started with these two characters that are completely new and different. It's after the war, which I think is important because, you know, there are people who don't want to even pick up a novel that's set in the Holocaust, which, you know, is a fact of this novel. So I joke now, I think it should just be called post-war, just so you know. (laughs) It's it's post-war. But it's right after the war. And there's a boy and a girl and a brother and sister. And I wanted to explore something I learned from someone I interviewed, which was that she went after the war and she would find Jewish children in Christian settings and 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 transport them to Palestine to that was British mandate Palestine at the time and this was also like a very complicated thing for the each individual child so it might have been you know in terms of rescuing Jews after the war it makes total sense as a population management issue but as a human single one to individual to individual issue is really complicated and I wanted to explore that but one thing that happens is that these children end up in a kibbutz in Israel and there's this violin prodigy 
And so we're going to circle back and her and her and her mom, you know, it's all, it's, you're going to kind of see the middle, the middle and end that you didn't see here because I really want to do what it's due. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to dishonor some real things that I felt were very important to, to give their space, you know, and not tack on like a weird second novel on a first one kind of thing. Oh, I love that. Well, I was wondering if you had any advice for aspiring authors in case there are any out there listening. Yes. I think my advice is persistence and faith. You know, just keep going back and having enough faith that whatever it is you write each day, whether it looks like it has no relationship to the thing you wrote yesterday, whether it doesn't seem like it's very good, etc. I really do believe that the mind is this incredible web and that these things are related and that if you kind of give yourself the freedom and the chance and that you keep going and keep persevering, that it's going to show up there and you're going to see it. And I've always been really fascinated by how you know, people can take cards of plot almost and like shuffle them one way and you'd have one story and shuffle them another way and you'd have another story. And so we just have to understand that our mind connects dots, you know? So if you're there putting out your moments, moment, 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 they will relate to each other eventually, you know? And if we just kind of give ourselves that trust, you know, and to keep doing it because it does take a lot of work. I mean, it takes a real lot of work, but you can do it if you stick with it, I say. After 10 years. <laughs> and are you, are you still singing? No, I, I haven't sang as much. My husband is very upset about it, actually. He's always saying, why aren't you singing? I sing in the shower. <laughs> All right. There's been some times when I thought of joining some, some groups around here, but I also get kind of picky. Like, I like to choose what I what I sing. This is also why sometimes it's hard to be in, in book groups because you're like, I want to choose what I read. Even though if you just go along with it, you find all these amazing things that you wouldn't have, you know? So yeah, I probably just have to give myself the chance. Well, maybe after this conversation, I'll get an MFA, join a singing group. <laughs> you have a lot on your to-do list. It'll be very, I'm inspired. So. Well, book is beautiful and your writing is beautiful and whatever magic you did analyzing texts and verbs and <laughs> structure and everything it worked and it was really great so congratulations thank you so much it's such a pleasure to talk to you as I knew it would be <laughs> really appreciate it well have a great day And just a reminder again, please pre-order a copy of my book, Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology, and go to my website under the anthology tab for the fundraiser, and I hope you'll buy a ticket and join me for, and I should have mentioned, um, all proceeds go to COVID-19 research. So please join me for the fundraiser. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time To Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 